As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello there, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast where Michael Cox, Mark Carey and myself, Ali Maxwell, like to get together once a week and discuss topics relating to football tactics, trends and the use of data analysis within the game itself. Hi there, Michael. How are you? Hi, very well, Ali. You went to Egypt last week. I was dismayed at first to hear that it wasn't to interview national team manager Carlos Kirosh about <laughs> AFCON tactics and trends. I did. I had a very good time in Egypt over the weekend. Uh, but no, I didn't uh, didn't interview him. Although later this month, there's the um, repeat of the AFCON final, isn't there, between uh, Senegal and Egypt. Two-legged playoff to qualify for the World Cup. I love the World Cup playoffs. I think they're absolutely brilliant games of football. Just so much tension. I love the fact that there's a home crowd, which obviously you don't usually get international tournaments. And such a big prize at stake. I mean, sides like these probably aren't going to win the World Cup. But the difference between being there and not being there is just so massive. So... Looking forward to that one. One of many things to look forward to over the last few months, as we are, as we know, in the business end of the football season. Mm -hmm. Hello to Mark Carey. Hey, Ali. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? Good, thank you. I'm looking forward to today's topic. Plenty to get through, as always. We're going to be talking about a team and a manager, not Leeds United and their new manager, Jesse Marsh, but you have been writing about him and his first game in charge. There was an interesting quote after the game from Marsh, saying, even going into the match, I felt like the performance was going to be more important than the points. And that was just as well, really, because they did lose the game. Hmm. But how did they play? What was the performance like? What did you discover? Anything new or improved? Yeah, there was straight from the off, there was some telltale signs. Um, the 4 2 2 two um was was straight away uh, clear to see um the the main focus of the the section of that piece that i wrote about was that they were their, their performance was good their the underlying numbers i know it's just one game but their expected goals were quite strong there it was actually their best expected goal difference all season and of course you got to take into to account the the opposition as well it was Leicester didn't create too much themselves, but they kept Leicester at bay uh, as much as possible. But I think it was just promising signs from the first game, really. And they've got to keep that performance level up because they've only got a few games to try and steer away from, from relegation. 
Focusing on the positive, Michael, for Leeds United, keeping Leicester at bay, as Mark said, is impressive and an improvement because in recent weeks, the looseness at the back, the gaps that opposition teams have exploited, you know, Leicester have got some players, so you'd say would be pretty good players in transition. Of course, Harvey Barnes, one of those, did score the winner. But in general, an improved performance out of possession from Leeds has to be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. That was the first thing to address. And they did look better in that respect and created lots of chances, really. Um I haven't looked up the stats, but I would guess that's one of the biggest uh, injustices of the season in terms of the expected goals. It was just, uh, I mean, I only saw the highlights of this, but I think, uh, match of the day, I think the only the only Leicester chance was the goal. And there must have been six or seven Leeds chances. So, yeah, interested to see how Marsh does. I think it was, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Bielsa, have been over the years, but very much an overdue change, I think. Mm, I dare say Leeds under Jesse Marsh could well be a future topic of this pod, but not today. It's another club and another manager on the agenda at the other end of the table, very specifically in the top four. Mikel Arteta and Arsenal on the agenda today because, Michael, they moved into the top four, beating Watford last weekend. It's 25 points in Arsenal's last 10 games. No one in Europe's top five leagues has taken more. They've actually won 20 of their last 30 games in the Premier League. So a, a good time to discuss them, a good time to talk Arteta again. Two years and two months into his reign now, Michael. Fair to say this is the high point so far? Yeah, I mean, winning the FA Cup was good. Obviously, they did it in style by beating City and Chelsea in the semi-final and final. But yeah, in terms of a consistent level of performance, um, they are looking good at the moment. Um, this is obviously a very serious uh, analysis, tactical pod. But if we can venture briefly into the kind of vibes chat, I mean, <laughs> he had a big problem with that squad. The squad was far too big. They had a lot of players on the fringes who weren't happy. I think they probably had a, a couple of troublemakers. And it seems like there's just a, a real different atmosphere at Arsenal, both within the dressing room and I gather from at the stadium as well, there's a positive feeling around the club. And of course, it's chicken and egg in terms of that and results. But I think Arteta is a former player. We, we sometimes uh, debate whether there's a real value of being a former player going into a club as a manager. I think this was almost good in a negative sense, in the sense I think Arteta was probably quite frustrated with Arsenal underperforming and knew that there were certain things that had to change. Mm. More in terms of attitude, I think, as much as tactics. And it does strike me that he has always had an idea of what he wants to do. Um, There hasn't been a consistent path towards Arsenal's improvement. I think last season was a big disappointment, but this season is, is going pretty well. And staying away from tactics and tactical analysis for the moment, Continuing the theme, Michael, he's had to make some quite big calls already in his uh, tenure as Arsenal manager with some big name players like sort of Meza Ozil and, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang as well. You know, He's still a very, very young manager, hadn't been a senior manager at this level before. So again, two years, two months in, it feels like generally the decisions that he's making in terms of managing the group as much as anything on the pitch has been, uh, well, it's a tick in the box so far. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, he's really, really rejuvenated the squad. They've got the youngest average age in the Premier League by a long way, by about a year, which in terms of averages actually is, is quite significant. So, yeah, it does feel like a new team. Um, I'm always a little bit reluctant to speak about managers in terms of needing transfer windows to put their mark on the squad because I think part of the job of a coach is just improving players you've got. But I think there probably was a, a, a big turnover needed. Um, and I think when you look at Arsenal's record since the transfer window closed, which I know is slightly cheating, but they lost the first three games in that weird period where no one's really sure of their squad and what they're going to be working with. If you take those 
three games out of the equation, Arsenal are looking even better than they are in the league table. More likely than not, Mark, according to bookmakers and 538 to finish in the top four and make the Champions League. In terms of the underlying numbers, looking at performance more generally, has that shown a recent improvement to, to a top four standard or have they been there all along? Well, I, I was more than happy to continue talking about vibes, to be honest, but I'm, I'll <laughs> defer to, to some numbers in the in the short term. But I think to sort of answer your, your final question of have they been there all along, I'd say they haven't been there all along. I think that since Arteta's come in, they've been fairly up and down if you look at their trending expected goals, non-penalty expected goals for and against. I think people will recognise the, the graphics that we use on site of, of those rolling um, averages and you can see it almost like a, a helix it kind of goes fluctuates between one and the other in terms of often they're creating more higher quality chances than their opponent for a short period of games and then it's the opposite for a, a short period as well so it, it's it's been fairly inconsistent across the whole of Arteta's sort of time there but in, in recent weeks interestingly ever since Aubameyang has actually dropped um, I think it was the Southampton 3-0 game I don't know whether it's sort of the causality of it but I think it's interesting that from that game kind of onwards there's been a real clear sort of improvement um, in the, the creation of, of chances and obviously not conceding at the other end as well and it's at both sides of the coin it's the highest and the best since um, since Arteta's come in. So the trends and the underlying numbers look really strong at the moment. I think you can always add context and caveats mm. because they've had a fairly favourable fixture schedule recently, but you can't take it away from them. They still have some good results. They have had a favourable fixture list recently. In their run of 10 games in which they've won eight, they've only played one fellow big sixer and they lost that game to Manchester City. So many people will point to a kind run of games. It is worth flagging up. But, but Michael, then again, I guess a mark of their improvement and a reason for the fans' excitement is that wins against West Ham United, Southampton, Leeds United, Wolves times two... You know, in the in their eight games against those four clubs last season, they only won three of those eight games. So it, it's wins against those sides, I guess, that can actually be the difference between fourth and, let's say, eighth, where they finished last season. Yeah, that is fair. I mean, those four wins have been battling wins. I think it's fair to say they've won all of them by a single goal. Mm. Okay, difference in level of performance. Wet Wolves, I think they got quite lucky and were holding on, whereas against Watford they were, I think, the better side and just considered a late consolation goal. But they've been winning by narrow margins, which, I mean, in terms of whether that is sustainable, it's probably not. But I think sometimes when, particularly that Wolves win away, I think the manner they won it, it's probably a bit of a cliche, but it's not the kind of result Arsenal have been getting too much over the last decade. It tends to be that Arsenal needed to play well to really win. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, they're in... Uh, they're in very good form, as he said. I didn't know that stat about the most uh, points in Europe over the last 10 games. That is mm. even more impressive than I realised. I said no one had taken more, which is a clever way of saying ah. someone else has taken 25 points. That and that's cheating, isn't it? And that's uh, the, well, Arteta's mentor, Pep Guardiola and Manchester City, uh, who are, as we know, uh, a better sign as they showed on the day uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, but at the start of the season, Michael, if I'd said to you, Arsenal top four in, in early March, would you have said, yeah, that sounds about right? Or mm, that's a bit over ambitious? No, I, I, I wouldn't have uh, expected that at all. Um, I'm not a big uh, gambler, but I do quite like looking at uh, pre-season betting odds just to kind of remember what our expectations were. And um, a friend of the podcast, Omar Chowdhury, uh, does a very useful thing on Twitter of 
keeping tabs of the Sporting Index points predictions for the end of the campaign after every game week. And it's interesting to look at the pre-season where, uh, or the pre-season situation where Manchester City were expected to get about 87, Liverpool and Chelsea were on 77, Manchester United on 75, and that was before they brought in Ronaldo, and Arsenal were on 62. So the expectations were that Arsenal were going to be 13 points short at the top four. That's quite a big margin, really, um, considering they're now favourites to join City, Liverpool and Chelsea in the top four. So, yeah, that is, it's been, a, so far, I'd say, a, a fairly significant overperformance. Um, and, of course, Manchester United have, have fared much worse than most people were expecting as well, which helps. It's interesting that the Arsenal got 61 points last season. So that Sporting Index projection of 62, um, showing that, you know, generally not a huge improvement in performance was expected despite no European football this season uh, as well. So clearly expected to improve fairly massively on that 61 point return from last season, whether they finish in the top four or not. Mark, compared to last season, what are the, the key improvements? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I, it's something that, that we broke down um, recently on site with um, two Arsenal writers, Art de Roche and James McNicholas, and looked at it from a data perspective. And as much as we looked at kind of the key improvements, we looked at, I guess, the kind of key changes from the start of the season and going back to, to last season as well. And we broke it down into into three simple sort of segments, into the defence, midfield and attack. So all across the pitch. And I guess starting with defence, the recruitment obviously is, is the main one. They've had quite a lot of changes, haven't they? Bringing Aaron Ramsdale in, Ben White has been has been strong in bringing the ball out of, of defence and Tommy Yasu being a good kind of defence first right back, which is almost a, a lost heart at the moment. Um, so I think the stronger, strong in defence, I think one of the, the main things which has maybe been a, a change is that less... I guess, less focus or less dependency on Kieran Tierney and his sort of chance creation or a lot of the, the attack coming down Arsenal's left. It felt a little bit, if you stopped their their left-hand side, you could stop the ball kind of getting into dangerous areas. Whereas now they're coming from, in terms of chance creation, coming from all over the pitch and coming from far more central areas, which we can come on to in a little bit more depth. But obviously the rotation and the, the sort of multifaceted combination of, of Saka and Lacazette, Odegaard, Emil Smith-Rowe, Martinelli. You've got so many players who are on form and if one maybe isn't within a game, you've still got loads of, of the others to, to come in. So I think a, yeah, a multifaceted threat. Again, the, the dynamic, which I think we've spoken about before on this podcast, the dynamic has improved since Aubameyang left, maybe off the pitch, as Michael said as well, but certainly on the pitch as well, that dynamic between those forward players just looks to be just clicking more so than ever. I'd like to... Uh, pull out their home form as something that's quite clearly improved as well. Last season, Arsenal only scored 24 goals in their uh, 19 home games. That's 1.26 per game. Uh, and they only conceded three goals fewer than that. So they really weren't a, a hugely dominant side at the Emirates. This season, 1.69 scored per game, 0.77 conceded. So uh, conceding a third of a goal less per game at home and scoring just under half a goal more, Michael. Th the return of fans is is quite an interesting thing to discuss when it comes to Arsenal and their performance this season. Improved at home with the Emirates faithful back there, but last season their away form carried them uh, probably more so than their home form. I think it was 10 wins in 19 away. Uh, this time out, they've, well, they've only won six and they've lost five. So it feels like the return of fans may have had an impact both on the improved home form and the reduced away form. 
Yeah, it's not often you hear the phrase Emirates faithful. There might be a, a reason for that. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem like there's been a good uh, a good atmosphere. I think the fans basically like this current side. They like Ramsdale. They like White. Um, there's a few players that have come in who I think just the, the crowd really enjoy watching, as well as the young lads, of course, Saka and Smith-Rowe. Um, so yeah, that, that probably has contributed. In terms of the intangibles, let's have one final point about vibes. Uh, when that translates to a team and what they're doing on the pitch, Michael, do, does it, in your eyes, make them look a little sturdier, a, li- a little less likely to collapse in what might be considered a sort of stereotypical Arsenal fashion over the last decade or so, the sort of things that Arsenal fans have been teased about by fans of other clubs over the last um, decade or so? Does it translate into being more confident in terms of putting away teams at home when they're expected to be dominant. What sort of things have you seen that you just think, yeah, this is massively improved? Probably in terms of the battling qualities, I'd, I'd say, you know, that that win away at Wolves, I think, was crucial in that. But it's probably given confidence, uh, confidence to the attacking players as well. You know, Saka's been outstanding and let's not forget he had such a low moment in the summer and I'm I'm sure the, uh, the, the welcoming of the Arsenal fans contributed to his... Uh, seeming ability to get over that and, and get on with the rest of his career. And he's, he's played excellently this season. So, yeah, there's various factors, but there does appear to be a, a newfound confidence about Arsenal overall. Well, of course, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. And in part two, we will discuss exactly that. The tactics of Arteta's Arsenal, how they're approaching games, what's working and what could be better. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So we did a podcast episode about Arteta 10 games into his reign at Arsenal so just over two years ago now Uh, and Michael it was early days but one thing that that stuck in my mind was that you'd mentioned he replaced Unai Emery who had struggled to impose an identity and even in a short space of time you felt like Arteta was showing signs of working towards a, a defined identity tactically so two years in I'd love it if you could define what you see as Arteta's Arsenal identity more clearly. Uh, has he settled on a formation or is he more proactive in, in tweaking his shape, his formation, depending on the opposition? I think he's relatively settled now. I mean, in the first 18 months, he was often moving between a back four and a back three. He's only used a back three once this season. That was away at Manchester City for a 5-0 defeat. OK, they got a very early red card with Xhaka, but he hasn't gone back to that. And at the moment... They probably do have the personnel for it, but there's no real need to, I don't think. I think they've got the personnel to play a back four very well. The start of the season was often 4-2-3-1, but more recently it's been 4-3-3. Um, the big change there is Thomas Partey essentially being on his own in the holding role, which I think he's done pretty well. I mean, granted, Xhaka has played higher as more of a number eight than a holding player. And there have been a few games, I think both the games against Burnley, 
obviously where Arsenal were inevitably going to dominate possession, where they played Smith-Rowe and Odegaard as the two number eights ahead of Partey, which is pretty attacking. And you mm. have to say kind of similar to the way Manchester City play with Rodri and well, at the weekend it was De Bruyne and, and Bernardo Silva ahead of them. So um, I'm, I'm kind of going into games knowing what shape and what system Arsenal are going to play and what personnel they're going to play. But there are subtle variations in terms of the positioning of the attacking players in particular, which I think mm-hmm. shows that Arteta's probably got the balance right between familiarity and just a few unpredictable things to keep the opposition guessing. In possession, how do Arsenal look to build up from the back? What are their general patterns of play at the start of possessions, Michael? Well, I mean, I think this is the thing that Arsenal have, have done best under Arteta. Their, their ability to play forward from the back Um there were a few games early on under Arteta where they just did that brilliantly. And then last season, there weren't so many examples of them doing it really well. But there's been a couple of goals this season. I mean, the second one against Spurs, which Aubameyang scored. Obviously, he's out of the picture now. And one against Southampton that Lacazette scored. Saka. Kamasu has continued his run forward. They waited, they sucked Southampton in, and when they countered, boy did they counter quickly. I think there's a few patterns they use in, in the build-up play, which are probably difficult to explain in in audio terms rather than visually, but there is a cohesion and a patience and I think bravery that, you know, it goes back to, I think we spoke about in terms of Tottenham against Manchester City, mm-hmm. like what are those goals? Are they counter-attacking goals? Not really, because they always have possession. But Arsenal seem to be quite good at kind of drawing the press from the opposition and cutting through immediately. And uh, and yeah, that is a, a very good source of chances. I think as well, just to kind of go back to, to what I was saying before in terms of the, the location of those chance creation, actually pinning some numbers to it from the, the piece that we had out recently that last season, um, it was, as I say, more geared towards the left-hand side. And if you were to sort of think about the, the opponent's half and split it into thirds, obviously got the left third, middle third and right third. And the, the majority of the chances created were coming from, from that left third. 38% of the chances created from that left side. So thinking about obviously Tierney and Aubameyang on that side too. And this season, their, their chance creation is coming, as I say, largely from that, that central area, but 48%, so a massive majority, is coming from that middle third of the pitch. And I think that's quite a lot to do with the fact that you've got the inverted forwards coming inside and coming into more central areas. But I think also playing off Lacazette and, and him being having his back to goal and, and playing off him as well. So having, as I said before, that multi-pronged attack of, of playing through central areas, I think it was shown really neatly with the, the Watford game at the weekend where Lacazette just laid it off a couple of times for mm. um, for Saka to finish and for Martinelli to finish as well. So as well as them building up slowly from the back, which is quite clear to see, as Michael said, that that contrast between it being more geared towards the left and now more central is, is quite stark. And a, a very welcome improvement. I mean, my... Probably my key memory of Arsenal from last season, and we did a whole episode about this, was Kieran Tierney on the left-hand side, slinging cross after cross into the box, and Arsenal really looking fairly limp in attack and and not too difficult to defend against, not a varied uh, attacking options. Um, Of course, we we did the uh, episode about it because Arteta spoke about it at the time, and we thought, in quite a strange way, said that it was pure maths that you know if they continued to put those that amount of crosses into the box then goals would be scored he seemed to be hinting that that was almost the way that he wanted them to play and he, and the way he wanted them to attack maybe what we're seeing now michael is that 
perhaps that was more of a, a defensive answer from Arteta. And, and in reality, that wasn't his key attacking philosophy. And for the best, I think. Yeah, that is true. I remember there was a, a game, I think it was away at West Brom, where it was just all down the left. It was just Saka and Tierney and there really wasn't much else. And it feels like now they have much more of a creative threat across the pitch. Lots of players between the lines at times. Centre forward who's creative as well. Uh, albeit not scoring much. So yeah, the, the situation has changed dramatically since then. And is the key name in this sense Martin Odegaard, Michael, and what he's brought this side? And if so, what exactly is it about Odegaard that has helped, I guess, unlock so much of this Arsenal attack? He's, um, I mean, he's just a very good player, isn't he? He's, um, I thought the goal he scored at the weekend at Watford was really telling because it was just so quick and efficient and his combination play with Saka has been very good. In fact, his combination play with various players is is very good and um, he just knits things together very well. I think his understanding of space is very good, which I think you would say about Emil Smith-Rowe as well. And he's kind of, um, he's not overwhelmingly expressive in the way that he plays, but he's just very clever in subtle, neat little ways and I think that's what Arsenal need. It doesn't feel like Arteta wants to base his side around one or two big players. I mean, he's actively jettisoned both Ozil and Bamiyang, But he's got a lot of players who I think are on a, a kind of similar level, similar idea in terms of how to play the game. And yeah, Odegaard has, has proved the best at being the central creative player. I mean, Smith Rowe's out of the side at the moment and he's mm. been excellent this season, which I think sums up how well the other three, Saka, Odegaard and, and Martinelli are playing. Straying into Adam Hurry's football cliche territory here, but can we talk about the fact that Alan Smith called him a Norwegian Rolls-Royce <laughs> over the weekend? That, yeah. I, I thought it was widely accepted that Rolls-Royces in footballing terms have to be central defenders, right? And sort yeah. of languid, laid-back, you know, ball-playing central defenders. Alan Smith didn't get the memo. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of discussing this at length with Adam recently. <laughs> my, my my opinion on a Rolls-Royce player is someone who is... I mean, it's not contradicting what you said, Ali, but for me, it's someone who's physically dominant but doesn't actually rely on their physicality, if that makes sense. So like Van Dijk is because he's very tall, very strong. But if you were to list his qualities, you wouldn't go for that to start with. It's almost like mm. a backup. So yeah, I'm not sure Odegaard qualifies in any respect for that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Go, going back to what makes him great, it, it struck me as you were talking, Michael, that with Odegaard, because of his technical quality and how composed he is in, you know, crowded areas in the in central areas in the final third, actually, it made me think that with Saka and his huge improvement over the last few years, with Emil Smith Rowe and his huge improvement over the last few years, you now have three players in that part of the pitch who are comfortable taking the ball with a lot of pressure on them and who you can be confident in keeping the ball, uh, holding on to it and probably getting their head up and making the right choice with it as well. That is a huge thing for any for any attack, right? Yeah, definitely. And it goes back to what we said about playing out from the back and playing through under pressure and attracting the press and playing in, in behind. And they've also got players who like running in behind. I mean, Odegaard can do it, probably isn't the quickest, but obviously Martinelli, that's what he's all about. Saka's great when he's running and and Smith-Rowe, I think, is a player who can do both. He's very happy coming towards playing, getting the ball to feet, but also makes good decisions when he's dribbling with the ball and he's off the ball runs as well. So they do really feel like they've got the right players for what Arteta's trying to do, which, um, yeah, is, is very handy. That's what it's all about. <laughs> I think one thing we've spoken about in previous episodes is that they just need that 
that real number nine who will go and get you upwards of 20 goals a season now. Because I think we said with the, the names we've spoken about, Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, Odegaard, all very good and, and can run beyond Lacazette in this case as the number nine, but aren't maybe enough to... I mean, you add their goals together, it could maybe be enough, but maybe not enough, a single one of them to, to contribute with, with 15, 20 goals a season. And I might regret saying that, but I think they just <laughs> now need that that number nine who, I think, again, it's something that, that Art has spoken about before, um, our Arsenal writer, that if they can get someone who can do what Lacazette does, but then also is a real goal threat and can score more goals, then almost, dare I say it, the, the missing piece of the puzzle. It's fascinating discussion, isn't it? Because first and foremost, Mark, to hear someone who's into data and analytics trot out the classic cliche, you would just need a striker, a 20-goal-a-season striker, <laughs> which I'm, I'm pretty confident has been debunked over and over again. But of course, it's, that's not exactly what you're saying. It, it is still interesting, though. Lacazette has been playing very well in terms of creating chances f- for the other players around him. So I, I suppose I'm interested in, in whether or not we see Lacazette as you know, basically performing himself into being Arteta's starting nine or whether we do just see him as a stopgap and and Arsenal's clear summer transfer target being a number nine. Yeah, maybe I will regret what I'm saying there in terms of that 15, 20 goals season striker. But I think it's whether or not if he can continue to do what he's doing and then the players around him can then all score a, a fairly decent amount, then his skill set is is perfectly suited because he mm. can play with his back to goal, people will play off him, people will run behind him. He becomes the the perfect foil. He can overload the the midfield areas as well so that, again, it drags defenders away and then other people can run in behind. So it, if he can continue to do that and then the players around him can can contribute with even more goals, you saw them a few of them score against Watford at the weekend and just continue to do that, then it could be the perfect kind of alchemy between them. It's just making sure that they can all sort of score that many um, I think that one thing that's thrown at, at Lacazette is that he can't always finish a game at the same sort of intensity that he starts it so he'll get maybe 45 minutes 60 minutes in and and maybe sort of lower his intensity levels so that may be you know, another contributing factor as well but remains to be seen whether or not yeah all the players around him can score quite prolifically I suppose. It is worth pointing out in terms of Arsenal's lack of goals that in January they went four games in a, go- in a row without scoring uh, three of them win the cup competitions, two against Liverpool, one in that defeat to Nottingham Forest and a home Premier League game with Burnley. But uh, yeah, I mean, that is quite bad. It's very rare you'll get a top side going four games in a row without a goal. Uh, mm. I know Lacazette wasn't playing in all of them, but uh, yeah, that would point to the fact there are some some games where it's an issue for Arsenal. I, I did feel particularly like that in the Burnley game, actually. Lots of possession, as you would expect, but they did lack a penalty box presence. I'm interested to ask about Arsenal out of possession, how they're going about things uh, and in general, Michael, their defensive performance because interestingly, last season they only conceded 39 goals in their 38 games. That was 1.03 goals per game. They're at 1.16 conceded this season, partly because their away record defensively is quite poor. What have you seen in terms of, of Arsenal out of possession? Do they seem more sturdy, more reliable to you? Yeah, there's a settled centre-back partnership with uh, Gabriel and White that I think very obviously complement each other well. I think they've got full-backs who know how to defend. I know that's a bit of an old-school thing to say, but I, I think it's true when you look at Tierney's a good tackler. Maybe he hasn't had a great couple of months. Um, and Tommy Yassi's very solid on the other side. Even Cedric's done okay. And they press well when needed. It's not relentlessly, but they do. At times, they can hold a high line and try and win the ball high up. 
Um, I did have a look at the stats as well, and I was kind of surprised by what I found, particularly in terms of the fact that Arsenal don't really seem to allow opponents to dribble against them, which I realise is a slightly uh, <laughs> convoluted way to look at things. But just in terms of the opposition's dribbles, it's just the fewest by miles in terms of dribbles attempted against Arsenal, which means that Arsenal make the fewest number of fouls, the fewest tackles. I know our favourite stat on this podcast is FB Ref's nutmeg tally. Correct. Arsenal have only been nutmegged three times all season. The next fewest is 17 times. I don't know whether that's something that works specifically on training, just keeping your legs together so you don't get embarrassed <laughs> in the FB Ref stats. But um, the slight sort of wonder is that is that I mean, trying to work out why this is the case is, is probably a, a fool's errand. But Michael, could it be that they've been instructed more so than other teams not to dive in or not to get too close to an opposition and and give them the option of darting past them? Could it be that they're getting so tight? in terms of marking out of possession, that when a player receives the ball, the the, the, op- the opportunity to dribble isn't on. I, it's quite a difficult one to work out, but it is interesting. Yeah, I really don't know. I want to kind of go back and look at the video, um, or look at videos, plural, to work out what they're doing. Um, I mean, the slight contradiction is that FBRF does record that they've made the most mistakes leading to opposition <laughs> shots, which does seem quite Arsenal in the sense they are maybe well-organised, but there's individuals who are letting them down. But mm. yeah, the, the the stats are interesting. I'm sure Mark has some more uh, kind of high-tech pressing-based <laughs> stats than these. No, I think all all stats are good. I'm <laughs> happy to, to use them all. But I think, yeah, it, with the sort of being dribbled past, I think it, it might be a good point that you said there, Ali. And it's something, again, we allude to in this this piece. I know I keep going on about it that we that we wrote on site this week, but the Arsenal actually by their PPDA, so their pressing intensity, isn't the highest. I think it's about eleventh in the league this season, mm-hmm. but it's it's more of a, a targeted press. So it maybe an art does some really good uh, screen grabs to show this, but they actually have a really contained sort of tight structure, tight block when when necessary, and then have a targeted press, try and win the ball back when there's a pressing trigger, when there's an opportunity to do so. So in terms of yeah, not being dribbled past, it might be that they are just keeping that that real structure, that real block, and then they have those pressing triggers. And um, in terms of them winning the ball back in the the final third, in the attacking third, they've got a real improvement, which which we show um, on site that they, they're winning it back in the final third significantly more in recent weeks as well as this season compared to last season as well. So it suggests to me that they are having those pressing triggers staying solid and keeping a a sort of contained block. Then when the opportunity arises, whenever that may be, if it goes out to the fullback, for example, having that targeted press, um, which sort of then reconciles why their pressing intensity maybe isn't the highest because it's more selective than just Mm. kind of gung-ho, shall we say. That reflects well, doesn't it, on Mikel Arteta and his coaching staff, doesn't it, Michael? We've discussed a a huge improvement in their build-up play and in how and where they create their chances. Um, But out of possession as well, we're talking about a team that is not as extreme as perhaps a Liverpool or a Manchester City in, in terms of the bravery or the intensity of their press at the very top end of the pitch, but seems to be coached in a way that the players can actually get a lot out of the moments when they do press. The Saka goal at the weekend was a good example of that, just sticking his foot in and winning the ball high. And it wasn't a particularly complex press that he wasn't the third or fourth man putting pressure on, but just nipped in, won the ball and scored, which is, you know, the kind of thing that some other managers base their entire philosophy around. So, yeah, they are they are pretty good without the ball. And again, I know it's cheating, but you take out the first three games of the season and Arsenal's 
defensive record does look very, very good. And that's the level they've been playing at really for a few months now. Stop trying to take out the first three games of the season. It's not but how it I, works. I, I just can't get over the fact that they've brought in, or sorry, they've returned to the system where the transfer window closes after the start of the campaign. It just makes yeah. the first three games of the season completely... That's not quite po- good. Not, not pointless, but it just means everything's so chaotic. And I mean, Arsenal shouldn't be the kind of side that suffer from this. But when you're one of the lower sides and you don't know whether your best player is going to be leaving or not the next day, I think it's farcical, really. Didn't see any issues with the system for closing it before the, the season started. Mm. We can add another to the list of changes Michael would make where he appointed the head of FIFA or UEFA or whatever it would be and uh, we've got a few on that list already something about not being able to box teams in because that was bad for, for optics yeah. something about uh, opening up throw-ins so you can throw it underarm or maybe backwards or however basically, you wish th- throw-ins are basically farcical in my opinion farcical throw-ins of course of course obviously and and of course bringing back away goals I imagine would be pretty high on your agenda yeah, I was desperate to have um, some kind of whine about that last night. <laughs> it just wasn't the opportunity, sadly, Ali. But um, I'm looking forward to the moment. There will be a moment in this kind of um, round of second legs where previously a commentator would have said, in a funny way, that, that goal doesn't actually change the task. <laughs> but he won't be able to say it anymore, and I'll, I'll be really sad. I'm sure we're all looking forward to your tweet as soon as that happens. <laughs> Hey Mark, let's go back to Arsenal though. It, it and again, I have no numbers to back this up. This is more of a, a stereotype. But um, modern Arsenal, I feel like from set pieces are considered or have been considered a bit weak. They're the sort of team who, when they win a corner, you think, have they really got the targets in the middle to 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 rise highest and head home? And at the back, you know, can they be got at? Can are they a little soft? Can a side like Burnley, will they be licking their lips when they win a corner against Arsenal? What's their record like this season and how does it compare to, to before? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. I don't think they really scare the opposition in terms of their aerial strength. But simply just looking at the, the set pieces that they've scored in the Premier League this season, they've scored nine goals, um, which is already better than last season's total tally of, of six goals. So already improvements in that regard. And James McNicholas did a piece, um, a really good piece on site going back maybe a couple of months ago now about Andreas uh, Georgeson. Um, and he was Arsenal's specialist set piece coach. Um, I think he's since left and now been replaced by someone called Nicholas uh, Jova. So it just shows, again, we've spoken about, I think, set piece specialists before and their, mm. their use and their efficacy. But it's it's something which has been targeted by Arteta and this this Nicholas Jovo actually worked with Arteta at Manchester City as well when, when obviously he was there with Pep Guardiola. So he joined Arsenal in July um, to replace this Andreas Georgeson. So it's something which Arsenal have definitely looked to target and, and to improve upon and set piece specialists are, are the way forward. Mm. Hard to argue with that. I tell you what, recruitment specialists are quite important in the modern game and whoever's doing that at Arsenal right now, I know it's been a bit mixed over the last few years, you have to say, look like they're doing a very good job. You know, Rating transfers is difficult, particularly uh, only a year or so after they're made. But last summer, Arsenal spent money on Ben White, on Aaron Ramsdale, on Tomiyasu and Erdegaard and Sambi Lukonga. And the summer before that, it was Partey and Gabriel. Those are seven signings, the only seven signings they've made for £15 million pounds or more, much more in, in the case of a couple of those. I think six of them, we can say, look like definitive successes in the way that they've improved this team. Sambi Lukonga, probably more of a, a long-term signing anyway. It's an impressive record, Michael, on this front, and that's very welcome, I dare say, for Arsenal fans. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm always a little bit of a kind of sceptic about how much this is about recruitment and how much of it is about management. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think any of them are guaranteed successes. I think they've been deployed well in good roles. I think White is a good example of that. He came in and he looked quite shaky his first few games away at Brentford, certainly, and away at Burnley. Probably no coincidence that Brentford and Burnley are the two most kind of aerial-based sides in the league. And I don't think that's his strength. But I mean, even someone like Tomiyasu, um, there was kind of some mixed reports about him upon his signing. But I think what Arteta's done is he's just deployed him in a situation, in a system that he's comfortable in. He's not a, a kind of buccaneering, relentless overlapper, but he plays a very steady, solid role and that suits him. And you can say that about a few of the signings. So yeah, don't get me wrong. They've, they've done well. They've been good purchases but I think so much of it is about precisely how they're used because a lot of people were quite sceptical about some of these players when they were signed. And uh, yeah, like I say, none of them were guaranteed successes, but Arteta's got the best from them. And Mark, Arsenal don't get the, the credit that, for example, Liverpool get for for their use of data in recruitment or in decision-making. Um, uh, is there evidence, do you think, from your expert eye that some of these signings will have been heavily data-led or, or had a heavy data influence? Yeah, from from reading about Arsenal's sort of setup recently, I think there's there's definitely been a more of a uh, look towards that that certain approach. I think my understanding is there was quite a, a bit of a revamp in the the scouting department going back to the summer of 2020. So uh, Edu, obviously the the technical director at Arsenal, he wanted more of a data focus, even more than they already had, and wanted kind of a more focused team of people um, and they already had their own in-house data team um, many people will be familiar with stat dna which mm-hmm. which arsenal have and simply edu wanted to lean more more heavily on that so yeah one of the main departures i think it was last summer was sarah rudd who is quite well known within um, people who sort of follow arsenal she was uh, arsenal's vice president of software and analytics so she left the club after nine seasons there replaced by someone called chris dove who's now the head of software and analytics as of last summer. So there's been quite a shift, quite a bit of a revamp in terms of the personnel there, but very much geared towards a focus even more um, towards data. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those those recent recruits were, were based on data, yeah. Ben White's an interesting one, Michael, because it goes back to what we spoke about a few weeks ago in terms of measuring rating centre-backs through the use of statistics and also um, trying to understand what makes a good defensive partnership and trying to build a good partnership. From what you've said, it's clear that you think Ben White and and Gabriel have been an excellent uh, and settled central defensive partnership for Arsenal this season. Um, White's numbers in the pure defensive actions territory, things like aerial duel win percentage, um, the the things that suggest strong on-ball defending, haven't always stood out that much. Even when he was playing in the EFL, he was on loan in League 2 with Newport, in League 1 with Peterborough, and then with Leeds in the Championship. He always looked like a classy player, dare I say it's something of a Rolls-Royce, or perhaps Hmm. not. Um, Is this a good example of, of recruiting to fit a partnership rather than just recruiting a centre back and seeing how he does? Yeah, I think that's very much true. Gabriel is a very particular type of centre-back and I think White is kind of the opposite. So yeah, they've worked well together. I think he's been very good in terms of carrying the ball forward, White. I mean, that is really what he was first renowned for, I suppose. And there's been a couple of goals. I think there was one in the first game against Watford scored by Smith Rowe that came really from a a, a very aggressive White carry forward. Um, So yeah, he he plays the centre-back role in... I suppose a slightly unconventional sense. 
And um, there have been a couple of games when he's been up against a really big physical centre forward and I don't think he's looked particularly comfortable. But I think overall it's been a, a good signing and, and Arsenal's defensive record is pretty good this season. Uh, apart from those first three games, Alex. <laughs> mm. If I can bring the England national team into this, um, where should Ben White fit in uh, the, the upcoming squad? A lot of Arsenal fans saying, based on his performances and very potentially and very particularly in comparison with the performances of Harry Maguire at Manchester United, that it would be a disgrace if Gareth Southgate didn't select White ahead of Maguire. Based on our discussions about the sorts of centre-backs you want within a partnership, it strikes me that one of Southgate's issues is it's not so much the Ben White types that they lack, because John Stones, you might say, would, would fit a similar bill in that sense and is an excellent player. It's actually maybe the Harry Maguires, the, the more dominant front-footed defenders, where England, Michael, don't look so strong at the moment. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean... I'm always one for picking on the basis of England performances rather than club team performances. Obviously, there, be there becomes a, a a certain line where you can't ignore that. But, I mean, Maguire and Stones have, have had a good partnership for England for quite a while. And I, I wouldn't want to be breaking that up to, to bring in a player. I mean, Ben White's had a good season, but I don't think such a good season that you disturb a partnership that works well on paper. And yeah, I'd probably say the same thing about the goalkeeping situation. Ramsdale's had a really good season, one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League. But Pickford's always done well for England. And aside from a mistake on Monday against Spurs, I think he's had a pretty good season. So yeah, they've both done well in the Premier League. But I'm always reluctant to treat international selection too much like fantasy football. I think uh, <laughs> rewarding players who do well for the national team is, is a good thing. Well, England's next few games are, are friendly, so perhaps that lends itself to experimenting a little more. Maybe Ramsdale will get a chance to prove himself a little more in an England shirt. Since the Euros, England have played seven games. Pickford started four, Ramsdale won. Sam Johnson started two. Uh, he's not been in the best form for West Brom in the Championship as they slid down the table. So I'd be surprised if, if Johnston uh, remains the more likely uh, sort of second choice. So Ramsdale you would imagine we'll get a chance to impress uh, next up in part three with Michael Cox and Mark Carey Arsenal have hit the top four their favourites to finish in the top four what happens next and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds DirecTV has the most MLB games visit DirecTV.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package high speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. I was quite wary when we agreed to do this topic, when we started our prep and when we were looking for improvements and looking for positives, of which there are many within Arsenal and within Mikel Arteta's tenure at the moment. But of course, they're not the perfect team. Uh, of course, we shouldn't 
uh, we shouldn't pretend that they are on the same level as Manchester City or Liverpool for perhaps at this moment in time. So in this last section, I was, I was wondering what can Arsenal improve on further? What might we expect to happen next? From what you said near the beginning of the show, Mark, it, it feels like there's still maybe some improvement in terms of consistency of performance over longer periods of time. That's really what defines the very top teams. Uh, a team with the quality of Arsenal, playing as well as Arsenal have done at times, are going to have periods of dominance in terms of the underlying numbers. But from what you said, it feels like we need to see more consistent dominance to, to start really putting them in that uh, at that top table. Yeah, I think you've, you've explained it perfectly there. The consistency is key. And I think, as I mentioned before, in terms of those underlying numbers across a a 10 game average they are as high as they are in terms of quality of chances created and as low as they've been under Arteta in terms of quality of chances conceded but now yeah the task is to keep that going until at least the end of the season obviously then take that into to next season and as I say the the trends at the moment look good perhaps maybe slightly inflated because of their fixture list recently so you know who they've played against they've maybe made them look a little bit better so I think the the next task is as well to make sure that when they do have tougher games I think they've got some some tough games coming up before the end of the season that they actually you know either look to to get a half decent result or actually look to have a, a convincing result in that regard to show that they are really kind of worthy of that and I, I think when we spoke about their build-up play you know working out from the back they have worked it really neatly out from the back but I think one comes to mind against Liverpool where they got caught. Um, I think it was Tavares got caught trying to work it out from the, the back. I think he was starting to dribble a little bit and Liverpool just picked him off or picked Arsenal off. And against those top sides, trying to work it out from the back neatly um, can kind of work against you sometimes. And those top teams like Manchester City and Liverpool can really um, profit from that as well. So against those top sides, maybe they just got to be a little bit more, um, have a bit more nous about them and, and It'd be interesting to see how they get on against those top sides. It's true, Michael, to say that they have really struggled against other big six sides this season. Of course, they got a win against Spurs in the North London derby, but against the three teams above them, Man City, Liverpool and Chelsea, it's four defeats, three of them to nil, conceding five away at City, four away at Liverpool. They lost 3-2 at Old Trafford as well. If they are to either establish themselves more likely to punch their way any higher or improve on where they are now that has to be an area to improve on how do they go about doing that yeah it's funny because it's kind of the reverse of early Arteta I mean he in his yeah. first half season he got results against Chelsea and City and Liverpool can't remember what they did against Manchester United but they were struggling against the lower teams and it's been a reverse this time around I mean I, again I, I don't want to bang on too much about taking this chronologically but the the, the City game was early season. The Chelsea game was early season. The Liverpool game was December. And the way they played on New Year's Day against Manchester City, I think, was was excellent. And they were probably unfor- well, definitely unfortunate not to get a point. I think had they taken their chances in the first half, they probably could have um, won the game. And I think actually their style in terms of attracting the press and playing through and exploiting space in behind, on paper, that does work against most of the top sides. So I, I kind of tend to think that's coming steadily and gradually and maybe will come with a little bit more experience for some of these players because it is such a young side. Mm. Um, I don't think Arsenal need to do anything massively different in those games aside from, I mean, the City game and the Liverpool game, when they when they went a couple of goals down, they did really collapse. Um, I mean, I don't think they're ever going to turn it around, but you can't be losing 5-0 and 4-0. Um, so I don't think there's too much they need to do differently in those games personally. And Gabriel... The referee is waiting off. for that. The referee has been waiting for that. 
Jesus has played him straight into that. Oh, yeah. Nice. The, the disciplinary is an issue. I mean, as I said before, they've made the fewest fouls in the Premier League and I think they've got the most red cards because of the nature of those fouls. They're often breaking up counter-attacks and that kind of thing and Jack are diving in. But yeah, that the disciplinary issue is a thing. Of the current crop of, let's say, 12 or 13 of Arteta's preferred starters, does Xhaka feel the one alongside Lacazette, who we spoke about earlier, who might be at risk of being replaced this summer? We talked about the way that Arteta has, has quite happily disposed of other big names like Urza and Aubameyang. I don't know if Xhaka necessarily falls into that category, but in terms of big character and personality uh, and well-known, sort of synonymous with the club, what are your thoughts on his future and his relationship with Arteta? I don't know, really. I mean, he's had, he's had such a weird period at Arsenal. I mean, I think he is useful. He's maybe not the kind of player you want to be a regular every week, but I think he does serve a purpose as that almost secondary midfielder alongside party or pushing on a little bit more. So I think he's always going to be quite a useful option for Arsenal. So I don't think he's necessarily the kind of player they'll they'll try to get out. But yeah, I think there probably is a uh, a need for an extra centre midfielder. I mean, I don't think we've mentioned so far, they've got a really small squad at the moment, Arsenal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a good thing in terms of getting rid of those fringe players. And of course, they haven't been in Europe this year for the first time in 25 years or something. So they haven't needed a big squad. But I mean, barring a sensational collapse, they will be in Europe next year. And I think we'll probably need at least another, well, probably three or four players, um, including at least one midfielder, I would say. It, it's almost automatic to say no European campaign this year will have had a huge impact, will have been a huge help for Arsenal and Arteta. Do, do you buy into that? Why does it help so much? And I guess, does that mean we should expect a drop off next season if they do have the rigours of European competition? I think it makes a massive difference and it makes a difference in terms of physical fitness, but it also makes a difference in terms of just having your team on the training ground. I mean, having a full week of preparation when you're, you know, a, a tactical manager like Arteta, I think is really important. And we've seen that before with, you know, Liverpool were boosted by it when they nearly won the league in 2014, Leicester two years later, Chelsea in 2017. And I, I don't think it's just the kind of practicalities. I think, again, to return to the, the vibes chat, those Europa League home games at the Emirates, they were just, I went to a couple of them. They just felt so bleak, you know? There was just a real feeling of negativity and despondency. And Arsenal kept on, you know, playing so many games and getting to the semi final and final and then not winning the thing and not getting into the Champions League, which really was why they were competing in it. So I think just not being in that has, has probably had a positive effect in itself before you even talk about the fitness and tactical reasons. I think in terms of the the size of the squad as well, if they do get into the Champions League, they'll have a lot of money, hopefully, to to be able to to fund some new recruits as well. So I think it was, again, the examples that you gave before, Michael, until when a side isn't in the Champions League and has a complete clear run in the Premier League, they it's for anyone who's interested in, in maybe joining them it's kind of a wait till the end of the season and then if you do get into to Europe into the Champions League then we'll actually have a serious conversation about you know these top players joining so I think that there's there's no doubt that in order to to battle on even two fronts of, of the Premier League and the Champions League they need just a, a bit more high quality um, they need higher numbers uh, in terms of that size of the squad so I think that will come with the money that they'll obviously then get from the Champions League if they if they get top four and and there are there is a precedent for 
you know, having a very strong season when not playing in Europe compared to those you're competing with and then being in Europe the next season and finding it a little harder, right? I think Liverpool 2013-14, then Leicester 2015-16, then Chelsea 2016-17 as well. So that'll be a, a big obstacle or a hurdle for Arteta and his side to clear next season. I just wanted to flag up a, cu- a couple of other things. In terms of their attacking play and their, their chance creation, looking at expected goals, on the Opta Analyst site, if you look at XG from open play this season, Arsenal 6th um, with the, the other big six teams ahead of them. Um, they're on 27.7 expected goals generated. Spurs at 30.1, Arsenal 30.9, fairly close. Then a jump to United, 34.8. And then miles off still, Manchester City and, and Liverpool. So um, kind of evident on that front how far away the gold standard still is and how they, they need to work towards that. And then a, a stat on the defensive end as well. Nine times this season in the Premier League, Arsenal have conceded two goals or more. Uh, whereas Chelsea, it's just three times. Liverpool, surprisingly, six times. Uh, Man City, four times. So a, a couple of things on both ends of the pitch to, to improve on for sure. But overall, Michael, from, from everything that, that we've discussed and the either small or fairly stark improvements in it feels like pretty much every area of of the pitch. The the general consensus is two years, two months of Mikel Arteta, plenty of improvement uh, and showing a lot of quality as a manager of a big club in England. Yeah, they're going in the right direction. And it goes back to what I mentioned briefly earlier. It's not always linear progress with the manager. I think he did a really good job first six months. I couldn't really see many signs of progress last year, um, but he got through a really difficult spell in the winter. And I think this season his performance has been very impressive. So... I think there's probably a contract decision coming up at the end of the campaign about whether he'll stay on. But I mean, even if Arsenal do collapse and don't uh, finish in the top four, I think the club is going in the right direction and I expect he'll be staying on. And will they make the top four? I I think they're in a good position. Yeah, I'd be surprised if they didn't from here. I mean, they've got three games in hand on Manchester United and Manchester United have have a very difficult few games coming up. So, yeah, I think they will. Well, that's been Arsenal and Mikel Arteta on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, a side in in very, very good form, a side with clear improvement on last season. Those are the sorts of teams that we like to talk about. We'll be back again next week uh, with another tactical topic with Michael and with Mark. Please make sure that you're reading all of their stuff on the Athletic website. In fact, Mark, I'm going to ask for a spoiler from Mm. both of you. What's coming up on site this week from you? Well, I'm not entirely sure when it will come out, but I'm doing a piece on free kicks that's coming out soon. So if you want to know the conversion rate of an average direct free kick with some fun graphics in, then please do read my piece. Yes, please. Michael, you've done a piece on free kicks before as well. Hopefully this will be a nice follow up to that. What's coming up from you? Please do remember it early. Genuinely flattered by that. (laughs) Um, Some match analysis of Real Madrid uh, PSG tonight. Nice. Uh, which should be good. And doing anything on Matt Doherty and his improved form, which I think is very interesting, actually, in terms of his positional change. And, uh, yeah, probably some weekend analysis as well. Quite like to see Burnley-Brentford. I think that could be a really big game at the weekend. Just yeah, good positive energy from you there. Enjoying your work, and that's coming across at the moment. Well done. At theathletic.com forward slash tactics. That's the place to be to read Michael and Mark and everyone else. Uh, just £1 a month. For the first six months, if you sign up today at theathletic.com forward slash tactics, new offer, one pound a month of 
your first six months of your annual subscription if you head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed because we'll be back again next week and we hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.